Glad to be back here today. It's good to be with you. Loved working our way through Psalm 107. And I love the way that psalm ends. There's a pattern that goes throughout that psalm. They're in trouble. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord delivers them. They're in trouble. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord delivers them. And then finally, what's always intrigued me about that psalm, it's a lot like Hebrews 11. You get towards the end of that psalm, and it continues to talk about all these things that God has done for them over and over. And then it just ends with whoever's wise, let him understand these things. And Hebrews 11 is the same way. It talks about all these individuals who have walked a life of faith. And then they get, he gets to the end of the chapter and it's just like, all these people. And it just continues on. It's like there's so much we have to give thanks to the Lord concerning. And I trust that you can feel that today. Let me piggyback on just a, few, a couple of those announcements. Because of all that Christ has done for us, we get the opportunity to express that to others and be a part of proclaiming. Adventure Week is huge. Betsy, you need 200 volunteers, don't you? A hundred more. I mean, but it takes about 200, right? More than that. And we still need a hundred. And when you talk to people about how God got a hold of their life, it's oftentimes camp and something like Adventure Week where God really speaks into the hearts and lives of people. It's an incredible outreach to people in our area as well. People end up coming in and their kids oftentimes hear the gospel for the first time. I would encourage you a hundred more at least we need to be a part of this. There's an important informational session coming up and so we need people signed up. Second thing is Los Angeles Bible Training School, um, Fred Sanders, Uche Anazor have both been a part of teaching there. Um, this is run by Dr. Paul Felix, and it's an amazing group. And I just want to remind you that we, when we give to the ministries of this church, we give to ministries like this. And this ministry specifically is training inner city pastors and church leaders. And so we are having an, an impact that goes way beyond these walls. And it's fun for us to be a part of this. I, I encourage you all at some point in time to just go to the L.A. Bible Training School. They have chapel about 8 o'clock um, on Tuesday, I think, and Thursday night. Um, Eric's been able to speak there some. I've been able to speak there some and just meet with the people there. Um, it's, just a, it's just a good time to see what God is doing. So praise the Lord for all of that. And thank you for your faithful giving to that. Mitchells are joining us. I'm here by Skype, and this morning, Jack, I want you to know I sat in your seat over here. The last few times I've preached here, Jack has been sitting in that seat over there, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to sit there and see if some of that blessing flows to me from a life well-lived and just faithfulness. And um, Jack, you're just, I just love you and just so grateful for the ways that God has used you in life. The title for this morning's message is Keeping Glory in View. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. Anybody need a Bible this morning? If you just lift up your hand, we'll get you a Bible, except for the Mitchells. We can't get you one. But anyone else, if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand. I think everyone's good. But God's Word means a lot to us at Grace. That's why we open it every week. We gather together because we want to hear from God. And that's why we're all here um, so that we can hear from God. And God has us in Mark chapter 9. And I've entitled it, Keeping Glory in View. I want us to think big picture. I'm always working, you know, months, even weeks in advance for when I'm going to be preaching just because of, you know, being bivocational. 
And so way back started working on this passage. And then as we were working our way through preaching, a few things really began to, to settle in my heart as things that needed to be emphasized this morning. Just big picture, going back to Eric's preaching a couple of weeks ago, and the, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. And Jesus begins to talk about his suffering that's coming up. And then going back to the reading service even last week and seeing, again, big picture of Mark, where all of this is taking us and how Jesus begins to talk about the end times. And we need to be awake. We need to be alert. Well, little by little, certain things begin to settle in my heart. And I want to consider that bigger point. As of right now, as we work our way through Mark, Jesus' ministry has taken a turn. He's been this great prophet doing miracles. He's got crowds of people following him. But now we're beginning to make a little bit of a shift. And he's actually given the disciples a test in that last passage. Who do people say to I, that I am? And who do you say that I am? And they passed that test. But what they're struggling with is now as they say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus begins to tell them about what's going to happen to him, they're struggling with this. They want the kingdom, but they don't necessarily want it in the way that God's going to bring it. They don't get all of that. Jesus is talking about suffering that he's going to face, suffering that those who follow him are going to face. And now in our passage this morning, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, Jesus is going to give them what I'm going to call something to hold on to, something that they're going to need as they begin to enter these darker days of following Jesus and walking with Jesus. He gives them a picture of his glory, just a glimpse, something to hold on to in the days ahead. Um, in the next month, I'm going to be going to Kenya to visit the Musiokas and spend some time there. I'm actually going to go to Jack's old stomping grounds, um, Scott Theological or Scott Christian University, I think it's called now. And I'm going to, I've invited Andrew, my son, to come along with me. And we're going to do something I did back in 2003, I think. I'm going to go up Mount Kenya. Mount Kenya is a grueling trip to go up. You go through, I think, five different climate zones on the way up. And what's really hard about the trip is you're working hard. You're just going, going, going. And you, you very rarely see exactly where you're going to. You, you can't see the peak. There, there's not that hope that we're actually going to get somewhere. It's just this huge mountain and you're going through jungle. And, but then finally, when you get close to the end of day two and you're going up to McKinder's camp, where you're actually going to spend the night, and then you have to get up at 2 in the morning so you can go to, you can ascend to the top. We're going to go to the third peak. Um, and so when you're coming up to McKinder's camp, finally some of the clouds begin to part, and you can actually see Lanana, the third peak where you're going to be going. And all of a sudden, by seeing that, you get a little bit more energy because you, now you've got hope. There is a place that we're going to. There is somewhere where we're moving toward something to hold on to because that last leg is going to be a tough one. But you've got the picture in view. You know where you're going. You, you know you're going to finally get there. And I think that that is what Jesus is doing this morning with the disciples. He's giving them something to hold on to. And I wonder how many of us 
as we have gathered here today in the midst of our own lives, and we all have a story that's being written. We're all going through the daily events of life. And, and if we could just all enter into our hearts and minds, there's a story there. And oftentimes that story is a lot of difficulty. And we need something to hold on to as well, either because of what we're going through right now, or maybe even because of what we'll be going through in the days ahead that we have no idea what it is. Let's look at Mark chapter 9 and read this, verses 1 through 13. Verse 1, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. I'm going to ask God to teach us this morning. Lord, we, we all need your help. And so we look to you now. We know that your word, as you have promised, is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It works its way into our hearts. And so, Lord, we, by faith, we want to open up our hearts to you right now. And we pray that you would meet us in the deepest places of our life and do a work in us. Draw us to yourself. Minister to us. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Whatever it is that we need, Lord, make your word alive to us today. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to do this morning with this passage, I just stepped back from the passage and I thought, wow, there's some interesting things here that as people read through this, they might have questions about. So even when I read this this morning, maybe this is the first time you've read through this, maybe the hundredth time, I don't know. But maybe you have some questions about some of the things that are going on here. And there are some interesting items that are here. Chapter 9, verse 1, probably should have been a verse that went with the preceding passage. Um, verse 1 is interesting for us, but actually between verse 1 and verse 2, there's a break. That's one of the places in the English Bibles where the chapter division was probably not the best. But there is a connection between verse 1 and what happens with us. But verse 1 brings up this idea of until they see the kingdom of God. I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom. Now, this, is, this could be heard by the disciples as the kingdom that they wanted. Messiah, Jesus, lay down palm branches. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. 
to the one in the highest, the son of David, the king that they wanted, who's going to restore all order for them, right every wrong. When this book is written, uh, Mark, the book of Mark, Peter's actually dead now. And so Jesus is back in the heaven. So did the kingdom not come? I mean, is this confusing for them what Jesus was saying? Well, what we find later on, especially when we look at the apostles' lives, is it's not confusing to them at all. When you go to Mark's, I mean, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, he says things like, I may say this with confidence to you. And he's preaching Jesus, dead, buried, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's preaching kingdom to them. I think, in fact, he believes he saw that kingdom. In 2 Peter chapter 3, when he is writing his book to those who have been scattered. In chapter 3, he talks about, and some say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is this king? And he says, oh, the Lord's not slack concerning his promise. He's spreading that kingdom. He's patient, not willing that any should perish. And so that kingdom message is being proclaimed. He boldly proclaims the patience of God and his coming again. And so when we think about what does it mean seeing the kingdom, there are a number of items that people mostly turn to, toward. For instance, the transfiguration is a part of seeing this kingdom. And, it, and this is where verse 1 does connect with verse 2. He says that few standing here, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom. And after six days, notice that very clear time reference that Mark makes. After six days of this proclaiming that some are going to see the kingdom, Jesus takes them up to the mountain, and that's where he's transfigured before them. And some would say that's part of that kingdom, seeing Jesus in all of his glory. But we would also have everything that happens in Christ's life, not just the transfiguration, but his atoning sacrifice on the cross, his triumph over the grave, the coming of the Holy Spirit that's going to happen on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We can also see it in his ascending um, back up to the heavens uh, to be right there next to the right hand of the Father. But then the blessing to the Gentiles, the proclamation of that message. Jesus himself said at the beginning of his ministry, the kingdom is at hand. It's happening right now, folks. Messiah is in your presence. That message is now going to the Gentiles. And so in many ways that was fulfilled right there before their very eyes. Now, we also have this whole idea of uh, what's going on in the early part of Mark, where into addition to what, what happens in Jesus' life after, we've got the announcement of John the Baptist that was a part of this. We've got the voice from heaven that happens earlier. This is the second time in Mark we have a voice from heaven. We also have the miracles that Jesus did, all pointing to the fact that the kingdom is here. It's just a taste of it. And so you've heard us use the words already, not yet about the kingdom. I know uh, from those who have preached here, and that's what's going on here, the already of the kingdom, because the king is here, but it's also the not yet, because that consummation of the kingdom is still to come. We still live in a fallen world. We still have the difficulties of this life. There are still tears and pain and sorrow, and there's coming a day when there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. So it's already, but it's not yet. They are seeing the kingdom just like we are. Now, there's a second item that's interesting in, these, in this passage, and that's in verses 2 and 3, this, that he was transfigured before them. 
In verse two, you see right at the end, and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white. This, this idea of transfigured before them, there is nothing in our world today that we can actually compare this to. Whatever happens in this particular scene. The same word transfigured is used in the parallel account in Matthew. We see it there. But in Luke 9, which also records the transfiguration, it says his appearance was altered. And so whatever transfigured is, there's an alteration of appearance. When they see Jesus now, he looks different. And the descriptions in all the passages are focused on the clothes. His clothes became radiant, intensely white. I love what it says, beyond what bleach could do. And I thought of when I was a kid and all the grass stains and on everything. And, you know, when you wear a white shirt, no, no doubt something's going to splatter on it. And then you got to get it off, off. Well, this is the whiteness of Jesus. The brilliance of Jesus was way beyond what Tide could do as a laundry detergent or what Clorox could do as a detergent. In Matthew, it also adds that he was white as light. And so you get this sense of even at his birth, when the angels came in that light and they were just afraid of that. It's something similar to that. Luke adds his clothes became dazzling white. And so just trying to put whatever descriptions that we can there to get that this was this was wild. This was bizarre what was happening to them. And Matthew even adds that his face shone like the sun. And so when you think about the sun, I don't know about you, but when I think about how the sun shines, you can't, you can't hardly look at it. Okay? It's not good for you to look at it. That kind of brightness is what they're trying to get at here. Now, what's interesting about this word transfigured is we also see the same word used in a spiritual sense. For instance, in Romans 12, 2, be ye transformed, transfigured. That's the same word there, by the renewing of your mind. So some, some, something about what happens to us spiritually, that we're dead, rebellious people bent away from God, and God moves in, and all of a sudden we become radically different. That transfiguration that happens to us spiritually, and we are different people at that point. So we see that word used there. And even in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we can see that idea. The idea is that of metamorphosis, a tadpole into a frog, a caterpillar into a butterfly. It's like, wow, this is different. Well, that's what the disciples are actually faced with in this particular scene. The point is this. It, this word always has the idea of radical change. It's a complete transformation. In the same, same way that someone is radically changed when they give their life to Christ, in this moment, what happens to Jesus physically is a radical transformation as well. His appearance is temporary change from that of an ordinary human being who they walked up the mountain with and they're going to walk down the mountain with it's changed to a divine being in all of his glory. I mean, they get to see his glory in a whole new way. It's another form. It's a visible, um, visible picture of the true nature of Jesus. They see his humanity pulled back and they see him in all of his glory. This is a divine assurance. They can proclaim you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
But now they get to see what this looks like, him in all of his glory. And so they're going to struggle. And they're struggling now because when Jesus tells them about his suffering, what does Peter do? Remember when Eric was preaching? Peter rebukes him. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. You're, you're, you're in the wrong place, Peter, right now. And so instead of rebuking him, they get to see this incredible picture. They need this help. Now, there's a third item that's interesting in this passage, and that's in verses four through eight. In this transfigured moment, Elijah and Moses appear to be with Jesus. Now, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Now, I mean, I have all kinds of questions. How they know it was Moses and Elijah? Did they exchange greetings? Hi, I'm Moses and I'm Elijah. And then they go, I mean, how did they know all of that? It's not like they have pictures of Moses and Elijah. But all of a sudden, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. And so the, these three disciples are brought into this incredible scene. So the question might become, why Elijah? Why Moses? And there's a number of reasons that we can give. You can see five of them here. The end of life experiences that both of them have. Elijah goes up to heaven in a chariot. That's interesting. But then you also look at the end of Moses's life. And it's very interesting. You read the end of Deuteronomy. He dies and he's buried, but God buries him. So nobody knows where his bones are. And so rabbis have said that God actually took his bones to heaven. In other words, you couldn't find his bones because God just took him right to heaven. So some would say that. But we do know that both of them were faithful servants who suffered because of their obedience. All they ever did was what God told them to do. And there was a lot of suffering with that. But yet they were vindicated by God. And this is also going to happen with Jesus. So there stands the three of them together, similar life experiences. Some would say that both have these amazing experiences with God. Moses, when he comes face to face with God and he comes back to the people and they're afraid because his face is shining. So he had to put a veil over his face. And then when he'd go in and talk to God again, he would lift the veil and then he'd come back out to the people and he'd pull the veil down. That's amazing. I mean, this is Moses's life. And then also, again, we've already talked about Elijah and the chariot of fire that he went up into heaven with. But notice fourthly, both had future expectations of God's kingdom work. So when Moses was standing before the people, there was always this foreshadowing of something more that was going to happen. And he even tells them in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18, that God is going to raise up a prophet like me, only better in the long run. And so that's pointing to Jesus. And then Elijah is when you go to the end of Malachi, um, chapters three and four, but especially chapter four, he's this forerunner who's going to come again, ultimately fulfilled in John the Baptist. God is moving forward his plan. Here's Moses, a prophet like me. Here's Elijah. He's going to come as the forerunner. And now here is Christ. God is moving forward his plans. And it could be that Moses represents the law and Elijah, the prophets, and they're going to fade in just a moment. And there's only going to be Jesus there. He's the one who's going to complete this work. Remember on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said to the disciples, how come you couldn't see all this that was written about me? And so beginning with the law and the prophets, and then it says in the Psalms, he showed them everything in the Old Testament about him. And so here we've got 
all this that Moses was pointing to, all this that Elijah's represented the prophets was looking through, and now here we have Jesus, they're going to fade, and now it's going to be all eyes on Jesus in this moment. Now in this passage, it says in verse 4, and they were talking to Jesus. Now it doesn't say anything in Mark about what they were talking about. But what I do find interesting is, is Luke 9, verse 31. Listen to this, Be, actually beginning in verse 30. He explains a little. It says, and behold, two men were talking with him, that him being Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, so that they're in this glorious state as well, and spoke of his departure. Oh, I would love to hear that conversation. And he goes on and says in verse 31, who, um, which was, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's interesting. Moses and Elijah and Jesus, all of them talking about what is about to happen. We don't know what the disciples were able to hear about this, but Jesus has already told them, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die, be buried and rise again on the third day. And now they're sitting there talking about how all this is going to take place. And I think it's just to help them a little bit more about what's going on in Jesus's life. And then we get Peter's response. Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. There's a lot of discussion about, well, what does all that mean? And you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to skip right over it because it doesn't really matter. And the Bible tells us it doesn't really matter because what does it say right after that? It says, verse six, for he did not know what to say. In other words, Peter should just shut up in the first place. <laughs> And so who cares what he meant by all that? He should have just been quiet because they were afraid of what was going on at this moment. I mean, imagine what this would have been like. All of a sudden, Moses, Elijah, talking about all these future things, and then boom, they're going to be gone just like that. As they come down the mountain in verse 9, there's a follow-up conversation, and this is the last time in Mark where Jesus tells them not to tell anyone about what happened. And only this time, he gives them some kind of provision. Don't tell anyone until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So now he says, there's a day that's going to come when you can blabber all you want about what you just saw, but hold on to this experience. And so they do, but they're confused together. And so they kept the matter to themselves, verse 10, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. See, this is the theme now. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He just got done talking with Moses and Elijah. This is where we're going. This is what God's plan is all about. They're trying to come to grips with all of this. And so they asked Jesus, what do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the son of man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? This is consistent in each one of the gospels that talk about this story. They ask about Elijah and Jesus answers their question. But what does Jesus do? He gets the focus off of Elijah and back on him because that's where all of this is heading. Even in Matthew, I mean, Matthew makes it very clear in the way he relates this passage in verse 12. In verse 11, they say, he says, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. That's John the Baptist. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. So he's already come. 
It's John the Baptist. And what happened to John the Baptist? They didn't appreciate his message. They cut his head off. But he began the process of getting people looking for the kingdom. And now Jesus is here. And so as Elijah's coming announced the coming of the Lord, so his rejection also warns of the Lord's rejection. That's what Jesus is trying to tell them. The rejection and execution of the forerunner, John the Baptist, was a prophecy of the rejection and the execution of Jesus. So what happened to him is all pointing to something else. And that's where Jesus continues to put his emphasis. And so those are some interesting things about the passage. It's amazing. The glory comes down and there's Jesus, Moses and Elijah in this glorious transfigured moment. But what is the point of all of this? Let's just think for a second about the, the continuity of the disciples' lives. They, they are walking through life. They are living day by day with Jesus. They're sitting under the teaching of Jesus and they are confused about what's going on. In chapter eight, this is what I was talking about, what Eric was preaching about a couple weeks ago. In chapter eight, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Okay, they get it. They understand what he's saying. They get it, but they don't get what he means by that. And so Peter rebukes him. We've got all that going on. Now, then we have this moment, but look at chapter nine, verse 12. Jesus tells him again, and how is it written that the, of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Okay, this is going to happen with Jesus as well. He continues this discussion for them even, even later on in verse 31 of chapter 9, where he again says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, notice the response this time. Before, Peter rebukes him. But now, in verse 32 of chapter 9, it says, they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And so they're going through all of this life, and, and they're, they're, they're concerned, they're struggling. And what happens right in the middle of all of this? This is where we have the transfiguration. This is where they, the, the, the scroll, the role of humanity is just pulled back a little bit and they see Jesus in all of his glory, right in the midst of their struggle with what they're going to do with Jesus and his teaching about all this suffering that's taking place. And when we see this glory right in the middle of Jesus talking about his suffering, it demonstrates that Jesus' suffering is not incompatible with his glory. The fact that he's going to end up on a cross does not detract from his glory and God's glorious plan that is there. And they're going to continue to struggle with this more and more in their lives. But in the end, what we find in Peter's life is he gets it. He gets it. When we finally get to 2 Peter chapter 3, so Jesus has died, buried, rose again, and they've been struggling with all this. I mean, 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we see that Peter begins to get this. In verse 16, this is what he communicates. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were witnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on that holy mountain. You see, what we see going on here is in the midst of all their struggle, God gives them something to hold on to. It doesn't immediately have the kind of impact where they go, okay, now we get it. But God gives them something to hold on to do in the midst of all this. And this is where we get what I want to call our truth number one. As we follow Jesus, he will prepare us to face the next situation. He is the great I am who is for us and will be with us. Right in the middle of all that struggling, God does something special for the disciples. And they don't get it right away, chapter 9, verse 31, but they do eventually get it, 2 Peter chapter 1. And this has an incredible impact on them. God is preparing them for this next situation. In fact, every one of these disciples are going to die for this Jesus that they've been following. They're all going to be martyred except for John. And John suffered quite a bit. But God prepares him for the next situation. And so as we step back from the story, we have to ask ourselves, what is our next situation? What we can be assured of is God's going to prepare us for it. There are so many unknowns that come into our lives. So many things that are unexpected. And even as I look across at your faces, I'm aware of so many unknowns where your life just took a turn and you weren't ready for that. You can rest assured by looking at this moment right here, God will prepare you for that. His grace is sufficient for you. He will be needing you in your places of need and you may not get it right away. But eventually you'll come to a place and say, wow, God was good to us because he brought this into our lives that prepared us for this. And we had no idea when we were walking through all of that. And so God meets the disciples in a very special way. This is who God is. He's, gonna, he's never going to give you more than you can handle. And whatever comes in your life, he's going to prepare you for. But let's continue to think about, again, the disciples' lives. And so now they're going through life and they're with Jesus and all these things are going on. And so Jesus tells them about, you know, the fact that he's going to suffer and Peter rebukes him. And then Jesus tells them again. And this time they don't understand, but they're just afraid to ask. So they're backing away from Jesus. You see, all of this, as they go through life, this is not going to turn out the way they expected it to. And so as Jesus starts teaching them all this stuff, they're struggling because eventually it's going to become so bad. What do the disciples do? They scatter. What does Peter do? He denies that he knows him three times. Even Jesus told him ahead of time you're going to do it. And he still did it. That's how dark it's going to get. They're about ready to, they're about to walk into a nightmare. They have left everything to follow Jesus. And it's all going to fall apart on a human level. Because the king that they're following is going to die. But notice, in the midst of all this, Jesus is trying to teach them. And right in the middle of this, again, what does God do? He gives them an eternal perspective. And he reminds them of exactly what they need to hear. This is my beloved son. 
in whom I'm well pleased, my chosen one, which is what one of the other gospels puts in there, listen to him. You listen to him. So in the midst of all of their struggle, God comes down and gives us an incredible reminder to them. All their hopes and expectations need to rest with Jesus. Not in their preconceived notions of how this is supposed to turn out. We're following the king and this is the way it's supposed to turn out. No, that's not the way it's going to turn out. So what does God say in the midst of it? You listen to him. Because whatever happens, whatever transpires, you need to be listening to Jesus, not rebuking him, not backing away and not asking any questions because you don't understand, but you need to be engaging him and listening to him. And the only way the Bible speaks about the word listen is obedient listening. In other words, whenever the Bible uses the word listen, it's not just in one ear, out the other. When the Bible uses the word listen, it's, it's let it sink in. And you pay attention to what's being said. Even the reading service last week when we got to the, the end of that particular passage and it talks about be on the alert. You be listening. Watch out, be listening. And we are to be listening to Jesus. And that leads us to our second truth. As we follow Jesus, walking into our unknown, it could be a nightmare for us too. Could be a lot of dark days. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we do know this. We need to be listening to him. Even in what it says in Mark 13, in verse 23, what Jesus says to the disciples, be on your guard. I've told you all things beforehand. I've prepared you for this. And God has prepared us for whatever is in front of us as well. He's given us his word. This is what we're supposed to be listening to. This gives us our marching orders. This gives us a perspective on life that we're supposed to have. And so God breaks down right in the middle of this and says, you listen to him. Now, again, this had an incredible impact on Peter. Again, going back to 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. But then he goes on in verse 19 and he says this. He, this is what Peter's saying. Listen. We were there on the mountain when the voice came from heaven and said, listen to him. We were there. We saw all that. But notice what he goes on and says in verse 19 to people who weren't there. He says, and we have something more sure. Now, wait a second. That, that's what we would all want, right? God to break into our life and say something to us. Then we would believe. Peter says, no, I was there, but we have something more sure than that. The prophetic word to which we will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture come from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, we also have something to listen to. And it's more sure than just a quick appearance. We've got something that's more sure. And so it's an amazing reminder to us that we need to listen to Jesus. Joni and I do a lot of premarital counseling. 
And one of the things that we've begun to notice about premarital counseling is where people are drawing their marching orders from. So every time we do premarital counseling, we talk about roles and responsibilities. So where have you learned what it means to be a husband? Where have you learned what it means to be a wife? And I think for everyone, number one is mom and dad. Okay, mom and dad have taught us a lot about what it means to be a husband or what it means to be a wife. We learn a lot from them. But for me and Joni, number two was, well, God's word. God's word tells us what kind of husband we should be, what kind of wife we should be. But what we've noticed with young people that we're counseling today is God's word is moving farther and farther down the list. But he's the one that we should be listening to. And so in your life, for all things, what voices are you hearing? Because the voice we need to hear is this eternal word that's been preserved for us. And Jesus, God says to the disciples, you listen to Jesus. Peter says, we've got something more sure right here. It's the eternal word that's been given to us by God. We need to listen to him. Now, also, again, we see the disciples going through their life. And the disciples receive a reminder that life is bigger than their little world. I mean, they're thinking about what they're going to have for lunch. And what happens? All of a sudden, bright light, Jesus' face shone like the sun. Moses and Elijah are there. I think they're getting a big time reminder to live as if God is. They're getting a reminder right in the middle of their life that this is way bigger than anything they could remember or think about constantly. They need that reminder. God steps in and gives them that reminder. Life in this world is not ultimately about life in this world. It's way bigger than that. Every situation that we engage is not just about the situation. It's about the honor and glory of God. And so as they're going through their life, God breaks in, reminds them of the bigger thing. Regardless of what they're going to encounter in the days ahead, they must be mindful that as they give their lives to the Lord, it will end for his glory and for their good. And so we get another truth here. Truth number three, life is bigger than what our eyes can see. We must live as if God is. Facing each situation, we have no idea what those situations are going to be for us, but facing each situation with a keen awareness that we're a part of the plan that he is working out. God is doing a redemptive story. Moses, Elijah, Jesus. Now we're a part of that, taking the gospel to the nation and the gospel that's being worked out in our lives as well. And we need to live as if God is. Earthly life cannot be all about heavenly visions. It's the day by day that we continue on and our celebration is coming, but it's not yet. And so we await that day. We must not be a people who live as if God is not and just crowd him out, go through the drudgery of life, not being mindful of the things that God is doing, the plan that he's working out in this world. We've got to be a people who live as if he is. But oftentimes we live as if he's not. We can be prayerless. The fact that we don't pray, it's just living as if God is not. We can be despairing. We can be full of anxiety. We can be looking to created things for life. We can be angry at being wronged or not appreciated, frustrated, lacking faith. 
But we've got to bring God in. And that's what God does is he brings himself into their everyday life and reminds them that this is a way bigger story. And so God is good in doing that for them. Despite what happens ahead, they need to remember that God is and that he's working out his plans. And we've got to encourage one another as well. I mentioned earlier that verse. It's in chapter 13, verse 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So as we go through day by day life, we got to stay awake. We know that God is, that he's moving everything in his direction. Then just the final truth I want to throw out there is this glimpse of Jesus reminds us that this world is not our final home. We live in a world that has fallen. We live in a world that is decaying. We face disease. We face death. We live in the throes of sin and we feel the pain of it. We cause other people pain because of our own sin. There's pain and suffering and sorrow, but there is more. And we are to live with this in mind. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 talks about momentary light affliction is nothing to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. This breaking in of God's glory right in this moment, one day will be permanent when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord. This little glimpse that they get will be full blown. And that will be everybody's reality. We will all be living in that glory. But we await that day. And so in this story right here, it's amazing things that happen in this story. But there are also some incredible truths that we can walk away with. And so let's think about these truths for just a moment. Why don't you bow your heads? <clears throat> We're going to sing another song. But before we do, allow the Spirit of God to be working. And you think about these four truths. What is God preparing you for? Or what is he giving you a reminder of? Or who or what are you listening to when you need to be listening to Jesus? The more sure word of prophecy that we have. Maybe it's remembering that your present life is not eternal. It's temporary. We've got a future life that awaits us. But why don't you talk to God right now? He wants to give you something to hold on to. And what is that today? Just spend some time in private prayer.